you have arrived at more love tribe live love ignite our guest today is lynn jeffrey of the institute for the future and i'm your host dr bahia maroon you can get all the updates on our guests and see what over a hundred thousand people are talking about at more Love Tribe on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, and morelovetribe.com. Thank you for being here, Lynn. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Institute for the Future. Tell us exactly what the Institute for the Future does. Institute for the Future is a nonprofit research organization, research and teaching. We are based in Palo Alto, California, sort of in the heart of Silicon Valley, and we are almost 50 years old. We've been researching and trying to understand the future for since 1968. And your role there is as an anthropologist, and of course, When many people think of anthropology, they are focused on some of the other disciplines. Archaeology is, of course, one of the popular uh, perceptions. And then we have all of our forensics anthropologists who have made it onto primetime TV. And then we have cultural anthropologists and applied anthropologists. What is the work that you do as an anthropologist studying the future? So I am trained as a cultural anthropologist, which means I study people's daily lives um, and different aspects of the, of, the, of the present moment. So a lot of people in cultural anthropology might study legal anthropology or system of laws and justice or medical anthropology. And I... At this point, I'm an anthropologist of the future, which means I try to understand how people think about the future, um, what kinds of questions we can ask about the future, how different people in different places might think about the future differently, and sort of the role that the concept of the future plays in people's lives. And at the Institute, we work with a lot of different kinds of organizations from very large companies to startups to government agencies to private foundations and universities. And increasingly, we're also working with individuals who want to uh, understand how to think about the pace of change and how to think about what's coming in, in a better way, in a more useful way. So you have been uh, conducting field research for quite some time. And um, when I was thinking about this interview and thinking about your uh, initial field research, it really struck me how uh, you have been looking at future as it unfolds since the very beginning of your work. Can you talk more about that first research project that you conducted on network marketing and the um, emergence of capitalism in everyday life in China? Yes, yes. So I first went to China in 1985 as a college student. And at 
that point, China was just starting to create what they called a socialist market economy, and they were coming out of a period of um, really more of a planned economy. And by the time I went back to do my graduate work in 1995, they were uh, in full swing of, of really changing the way that people thought about work, the way that people thought about, you know, what it, was, what it means to earn money. And so I was trying to understand, for people who had grown up under an education system that taught them that making money in capitalism was bad, which was, which was the case in 19, certainly in 1985 and still in 1995, there were a lot of people who had grown up during that time. Um, what, how were they making sense of a new world in China where all of a sudden there was a labor market and you had to find your own job rather than the state giving you a job? And housing, uh, all of a sudden there was a real estate market and you had to buy your own house rather than having the state give you a, a house. And all of these things were being privatized. And so I was trying to understand um, how people reconciled that. And it, it, I didn't think of it as a futures project at the time, but, of course, it was a peek into new stories that people were telling to make sense of China's rise into, you know, what is now very clearly a, a kind of dominant um, capitalist, but capitalist in a different way than in the U.S., a dominant force. So network marketing or multi-level marketing turned out to be a really interesting way to understand what was happening in, in, in people's minds and in their hearts because you had a, a whole generation of people who had lost their jobs, their, their state-run jobs. Um, the state was you know, laying people off left and right. Many of these people were not educated. And so all of a sudden they found themselves in a new world and they had to figure out how to fend for themselves. And multi-level marketing, companies like Amway, um, Herbalife, um, they came in, Mary Kay, Avon, and offered what looked, like, <clears throat> what looked like a path to a new future, a path to even a new self, someone who understood how to sell things and how to talk about money in a different way and someone who imagined that their friends and their family and the people who lived around them in their village could actually become a source of income. And that was a really different way of thinking about social relationships at that time. So it was, it was, a, it was an amazing moment to be trying to understand that in China. And, of course, those attitudes have become... Uh, much more common today in China, but at that time they were still pretty new. I want to spend some time talking with you about trust and rapport today in anthropology and, and as a practicing social scientist uh, going out directly into the field, not only teaching the subject matter. There have been a number of new books coming out by um people who have backgrounds in law enforcement and uh, folks who have worked with the CIA and the FBI um, talking about how to build trust uh, in everyday life, how to build rapport with others in everyday life. And this is something that we in anthropology have been uh, doing since, you know, the early 1900s and uh, not 
for the purpose of law enforcement, but for the purpose of greater social understanding. And working in a time post 9-11 in particular, um, but for some people, depending on their area of research, uh, pre-9-11 as well, some of our fields are rife with mistrust for us as Westerners coming in, asking questions, sitting and doing this thing called participant observation. What are some experiences that you have had with the startling and ever surprising uh, and also intriguing journey of building trust and rapport with people in the field? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was lucky at the beginning of my graduate work when I was doing the work with multi-level marketers that they saw me as a marketing opportunity. So I actually got a chance to mm-hmm. sort of hone my interviewing craft and think about uh, how to do research, learn how to do research um, with people who were very eager to talk to me. Um, although it was quite difficult to get beyond the layer of sales and to actually get people to share what they really thought and what they were really trying to do. And of course, that's always the, the toughest part with any kind of qualitative research is to try to figure out how to understand why people are doing things. And, um, you know, whether, so you can't just rely on, this is why we call it participant observation. Mm-hmm. It's not just, it's not just listening to what people say. It's trying to observe how they organize their houses right. and how they organize the office and how they organize their days and, and how they think about who they spend time with and, so you're sort of trying to do this meta-analysis mm-hmm. of the unspoken ways that people express themselves. Um, but, of course, you also don't want to make people feel like they are being observed in some weird uh, scientific way. Mm-hmm. So it is a tricky dance. Um, one of the reasons why I like doing um, ethnographic futures or talking with people about their future is I find it a really powerful way to build trust. Um, Most people have not thought deeply about the long-term future. So some people have, but most people, when you ask them to think five or 10 years ahead, they haven't thought about it much. But when you structure a conversation that takes them through thinking about what was life like for them 10 years ago, what was it like five years ago, how have they dealt with change over that time? And given those practices and those strategies, what are they anticipating coming, you know, in the future? And how might they deal with that? It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a very engaging conversation. Uh, it's something most people haven't thought about, and they actually are, are enjoy thinking about it. And I find it creates a really intimate uh, experience between the the question asker and the question answerer. The, the role of questions is very much central to the work at the Institute. How do you distinguish the manner in which you and other ethnographers at the Institute use questions? 
I think um, we have a we have a long. So I've been at the institute since 2001, and I've done. I don't know, I've never counted, but a lot of these kinds of interviews and some of my colleagues, and we're constantly trying new things. We're constantly trying, um, you know, new ways of asking questions, but we have a certain structure that we use, which, as I described, starts with having people think about what change has looked like in their lives. And um, when you ask people questions about the future, it's easy to get a very simplistic kind of science fiction, you know, joking, funny answer, mm-hmm. which isn't that interesting. Um, a lot of those kinds of answers are shaped by, you know, science fiction and television shows and movies. And um, so as with any kind of ethnographic research, we the kinds of questions that we ask are questions that help people tell stories. Um, so they're not yes and no questions. They are questions that are meant to get people to reflect on experiences that they've had. And there's a, you know, there are many ways of doing that. And they often begin with asking people to describe the context which they're in, you know, depending on what kind of future we're exploring. If it's a future around well-being or health, we will uh, spend a lot of time talking about their, um, how they keep themselves healthy, all the different ways they do that, including the people and the different resources. Um, and only once we've set the context of, of their lives do we start to ask more reflective questions. I, I had the um, privilege, really, of moving in and out of different spaces across the United States and uh, being part of uh, conversations with very, very different uh, kinds of demographic groups. And something that has increasingly struck me over the years is the social capital involved in access to future thinking and access to even conceptualizing change and difference. Um, the very idea that what will be is going to be different than what is, is an extremely privileged position, particularly for people who are living in conditions where what is, um, you know, may be unsafe, it may be a financially insecure, it may be um, all kinds of different socio-political challenges being faced. How does the institute? Um, how does the institute think about the distribution of futures knowledge? And and how do you think about the distribution, the access to asking these questions as a tool of power? Yeah, so my sense, my belief is that everyone is a futures thinker, that we just don't think of it that way. Um, So many of the actions that we take um, and the decisions that we make are made with some understanding or some hope or fear 
about what the future will look like. And so <clears throat> I think one of the things that we're focusing on, especially uh, now that we are turning 50 years old as an institute, is expanding um, the research and sort of teaching side of what we do as much as the uh, as much as the research side, so the teaching and training side as much as the research side. Because I find that really the, the process of future thinking to me is about uncovering your own attitudes and strategies for the future. It's not that um, people don't have a sense of what the future will be, it's that they're not aware of what their own sense is. And whether that's, um, you know, uh, an executive or a high school student, I think it's true in, in, in most cases. And so I think for a lot of people, they, they think of future thinking as, I mean, it is, it's, it's a pretty esoteric thing when you talk about it as futurism or, but when you, when you think about the way that people make decisions and choices, um, they are often done I think they're always done with some mostly unarticulated, even to oneself, sense of what the future could hold. So I think you're right. Um, my colleague Jane McGonigal has started saying that future thinking is a human right, um, and mm -hmm. that really um, what we need to be focusing on is not that the future is one thing or another, or that certain questions should be asked and others should not be asked, but um, helping people um, kind of unpack how they're structuring their present through their vision of the future. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of different kinds of participatory futures work which are taking place um, more at the community level than mm -hmm. at the sort of corporate or organizational level. Mm -hmm. um, there are sort of community, many, many different uh, examples of community scenario projects um, where people will come together to do something like, you know, planning for water resources or, um, or urban planning. So future thinking is used in so many different contexts. Um, the kind of work that we do is, um, I think, feels different than that, but it, at its heart, yeah, I think it's quite similar. And, you know, I had, a, I had um, over the last two years, I have been really fortunate to be able to do some work in Saudi Arabia. And um, there were, I had read a lot of literature in the futures field about how um, different religious approaches to the sense of time might affect people's uh, way of thinking about the future. Um, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And I also wasn't sure how, speaking of trust, how, you know, young women and men in Saudi Arabia would respond to me as a, as a white American woman. Um, asking them what are sometimes kind of intimate questions uh, about the future and, and how they imagine their lives going. And 
I found it actually, uh, as I have found usually in, in every situation that I go into, that the quality of the conversation, as I said, you, you can't start by asking someone at the beginning, so what do you think your life is going to look like in 10 years? You have to right. start with this kind of gentle exploration of what are the challenges that, what did life look like 10 years ago? What are some of the challenges that you faced? And of course, we're always asking specific questions. So we usually don't do research, which is just generally about the future. We're always thinking about, for example, the future of local information or local media or the future of learning or the future of work. So um, I think you're right. I think many people don't um, get to have those conversations or I guess I could say they have them, but they don't know they're having them. And uh, one of the things that I've sort of been thinking about for a while is the StoryCorps model, mm-hmm. where, you know, StoryCorps, is, uh, they, uh, as you know, they set up these sort of kiosks in public spaces, and anyone can go into them, and it's an audio recording space, and it basically provides a structure for two people to have a conversation. Um, and I think I, I would, I, I think we could do and should do the same thing with futures thinking, which is basically provide simple templates and structures for people to have different kinds of conversations about the future. So I don't know if that answered your yes, question. Yes, it does. Yeah. What... So you were looking at so many different areas of what will happen uh, ahead. What area really speaks to you? You know, you look at work, you look at healthcare, uh, transportation, social media. When when you're doing the research and the stories are coming through, is it is it even really about a story, uh, a, a specific area, or is it the particularities of people's stories? Where where does the passion in the work emerge for you? I think, so I'm very interested in a couple of things. Um, one is um, new technology applications. So everything from, you know, the rise of social media and Facebook to Instagram to Kick to whatever, you know, Vine. I mean, any, any of the things. WeChat in China, I do a lot of work in China. I'm always interested in, um, of course, uh, Snapchat. Any, any of these new emerging platforms which allow people to communicate in a new way. Um, those are, um, you know, I can spend a lot of time um, watching what people are doing, talking with people there, communicating, because I find it really exciting to see the way that people use it as a creative medium. Um, and so, so that, I guess that, that's one area will be new social communication platforms. And, and, I'll, and I'm very interested right now in what will happen with augmented and virtual reality. It's still a couple of years down the road, but there are some, you know, some very interesting things happening. And then the other one, um, the second one would be the future of livelihood. And, I mean, clearly there's, um, 
there are a lot of things that are changing about the way that people can earn a living and about education, the role of education. Um, there's, at least in, in the U.S., increased, you know, socioeconomic stratification, which is uh, just getting worse every year. And so I'm, I'm super interested in new experiments that people are undertaking to try to answer the question, how do I support myself and my family? And then the third area right now, not surprisingly, is the future of democracy, and in particular, the future of media and democracy. And if what we can do to, uh, to change the media and information environment that we find ourselves in, which is, 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 has completely broken down and is kind of in the process of breaking some basic democratic um, systems in our country. So I want to I want to get really involved in each of these areas, uh, but I want to start off in the the social media area, and there's a pushback or um, a stereotyping. I'm I'm not sure what the best phrasing is for it um, around social media around these platforms at this point, um, where the numbers are gargantuan of the users, but the manner in which it's presented to us through mainstream analysis is that um, we are all losing something. Social media is dividing us. It is um, uh, taking away our ability to focus. Uh, it's causing us to not sleep. Uh, you know, this could, just could be um, hours and hours of a show if I just listed uh, all of the things that it is undoing in society. And so there's this really intriguing dialogue that is emerging where the thing that everyone is using has a terribly negative a public image. Everyone is still using it. I'm interested in what you see as the other side of social media use, where the autonomy and the connectivity um, are creating something that may be productive or creative or inspiring. What are some other things that you're seeing in your research around social media in actual practice? So it's interesting. I think I, by, by nature, am a bit of a pessimist uh, about technology, and, and it's part of what drives me to always be looking for positive and hopeful and creative examples and why I'm so inspired by them when I find them. Um, and one of the things that we say at the Institute is, I mean, you know, it's every every technology, every new application has is going to have both pros and cons. Um, and I think the conversation around social media is is shifting. It's fascinating to watch to watch it shift and to watch the the waves of um, of, of debate about it. Um, so the things the things that I look for that are inspiring to me and and that I think drive a lot of um, of use 
are people finding ways to express themselves and to connect with others who see them and who appreciate them um, in, in ways that they can't find in their face-to-face interactions. And for most people, most social media is still something that's engaged with the people that they know. Um, but for a lot of creators in particular, whether it's doing music or whether it's writing or film or comedy um, or graphic design, um, social media provides that channel. And it's really incredible if you think about it. Um, just, you know, 10 years or so ago, people didn't have that channel. Um, we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have ways to be seen. And so that, I think, is, is incredibly powerful and incredibly uplifting. And, you know, people are, are now making a living doing it, and people have become well-known and are able to turn their lives toward doing that thing that they love. Um, so those are the parts that, that, are, that are inspiring to me. So right now um, there's a community called Anyland, which is a virtual reality community um, in which people are, a lot of artists um, are creating their own world in virtual reality. And the worlds are connected just like the internet is. So you could, you know, someone hands you a drink and you take a drink and then you're transported to another world. And the worlds are um, bespoke and People can meet in there. They can. You can walk around just as you would in in the real world, and and it's just you know the the idea that people can create environments, design environments, and others can come experience those. Um, I think is is just is just the latest example of the the, the good part of social media. Mm. One of the things that I just get so uh, struck by as I watch my nieces and nephews uh, interact and, you know, with the holidays coming, we'll have these get-togethers and it's a very large extended family so we can have young people ranging in ages. We get 10 or 15 in a room and they're sitting there and they have their devices and they're all looking down. Not talking to one another, but they're actually interacting on the devices while they are sitting next to each other. And this is a Caribbean American family experience that I'm sharing. What are some things that you're seeing in the fields in China, in Saudi Arabia? Uh, I know you also do some domestic United States research. What are you uh, seeing in terms of these unexpected ways that it might at first appear people are disconnected. You know, you see a room full of teenagers that are looking down and so you think that they're not interacting. It's disconnected. And then you realize, no, actually they are interacting and maybe even more deeply than they could if they thought that the adults knew what they were, (laughs) you know, talking about. (laughs) What are are some uh, stories that you can share about seeing more than what is there on the surface for interactions? Well, I mean, 
I completely agree. So as I said, I'm by nature a pessimist when it comes to these things. I'm a late adopter. Um, I, I explore all of these things because it's my research. Um, but I was very late to get a smartphone, um, and um, I, I feel that I'm, I'm worried, I guess I would say. I'm, I'm, I, I do feel that these, the, the, having this device, a connected device, and all the different platforms with us at all times is having a profound effect on our face-to-face -face interactions. Um, and I do, I do think that we're in a, uh, a multi-year process of figuring out how to deal with that. And I, I can see in the last 10 years, the way that uh, some, some of the, some, at least in the U.S. and in China too, I, I can't say I have been looking at it in Saudi Arabia that long, but the um, young people themselves, I think, do see the value of the face-to-face -face experience and, and in some ways may value it more than those of us who didn't grow up in person. So the, the young people's approach to how they're using social media and when and why um, is, I think, much more sophisticated than it was when social media first came out. And um, so I think that's, that's good news. Um, a lot of young people are uh, thinking much more carefully about which platforms they use, and, and, and most of them have had experiences since middle school of having to navigate the kind of virtual community, online community, and, um, and the face-to-face -face community. So I think they're probably quite sophisticated compared to some of us when it comes to seeing both the good and the bad. Um, at the same time, the, the loss of um, certain kinds of face-to-face -face behaviors um, when people are in groups, I think is, I don't think we know actually what will be the long-term implications of that. Um, you know, we see some uh, moves towards people not using their phones when they're together. So this is a story that we've been hearing from college students in the U.S. where they'll go out and everyone puts their phone in the middle of the table and you, you, you're not allowed to touch it. Um, or the, you know, the rise of things like playing board games are popular, again, um, in, some, in some communities in some groups of young people, I think, because that's a face-to-face, -face, physical, tangible experience. So right. um, all of it's happening at the same time, but I do, I, I, do, I do worry, I have to say. If you are just joining us, my guest today is Dr. Lynn Jeffrey. She is Research Director and Distinguished Fellow at the Institute for the Future, in Silicon Valley. You're listening to Start Now, and we will be right back after this brief interlude.
We are talking today with Dr. Lynn Jeffrey. And Lynn, I have had the honor and the absolute delight and privilege of knowing you uh, since graduate school at the University of California, Santa Cruz, being able to um, watch you uh, ahead of me on the path, pursuing a PhD in anthropology. And one of the many things that we have in common is being single mothers in the pursuit of that degree. Would you talk with our audience about what that process was like for you as a woman in academia, uh, wanting to complete the research, wanting to participate as a scholar, uh, and also raising your son? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, in many ways, was was very lucky to have a baby in graduate school, um, which is a, a time when you have a lot of control over your schedule. You don't have to, you know, attend a, a job with specific hours. You have to be in class, of course, but um, you have a lot of, of control over the rest of your time. And so it was a good time to have a very young child. Um, as a single parent, um, of course, you know, it's, um, this take, takes a lot more um, and you have to rely on others much more to, to do some of the parenting and to help. And in that sense, being in an academic or a grad student community was also helpful. Um, for me, I had my son when I was 29, and I was the only person in my cohort to have a child. And so that was, you know, I had a lot of, I did have a lot of help from my grad student friends, and that was also wonderful. Um, but especially as a single parent, but even if I had had a partner during that time, um, the fact that most grad students, at least in the program that I was in, at least none other grad students, none of them had children, meant that you're, you know, you're very much um, at a disadvantage when it comes to the amount of time that you can spend to do things. And so it ended up taking me a lot longer than it did for some others. Um, but when I think about it, you know, the, the, the being a single parent, um, and by the time I finished grad school, my son was about five. And that was really what led me to the, the path that I'm on now um, because I had – a community of people who I was, who were, you know, very close with and who were very important to us and important to kind of keeping our family going on a daily basis. And I didn't, I didn't want to move. And of course, the life of an academic, especially when you're just finishing your, your degree is either if you're very lucky, you get a tenure track position and you have no, no choice over where you move. 
before you get a postdoc, which is really a nine-month gig, and you also have no choice of where you move. Mm -hmm. So the choice was much more clear to me that as someone who relied on this kind of social and emotional network, I didn't want to leave, and I didn't want to bring my son to a new environment where neither of us knew people, and in the case of a, of a postdoc, that I would be immediately applying for a grant for the next year. And so the uncertainty that a young PhD goes through um, is it just, it just takes such a huge toll, and it wasn't one that I could bear or was willing to bear as a single parent of a young child. And so I had to find something else to do. And I, you know, that was through another one of, um, of our colleagues, our, our graduate student colleagues at U University of California, Santa Cruz, Galen Joseph. Um, she, had, she was already working at the Institute. She was the one who sort of found it. And they needed a sort of a contract researcher. And it made sense. And it ended up so. So it it ended up being, um, I think, really definitive in in why I'm doing what I'm doing now. One of the things that I'm uh, really interested in uh, by the work that you do as an anthropologist working in the applied setting is the the interdisciplinarity uh, of all of your research and uh, the production itself. Um, what is it, uh, what do you think it contributes? How does it shift and shape the way that you ask questions, what you're thinking about uh, when you're working with uh, engineers or software programmers or, you know, heaven forbid, a sociologist? <laughs> 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 um, how have you found your own voice as an anthropologist strengthened uh, as the result of having these interdisciplinary engagements? Well, so first of all, you know, when you do applied ethnography, applied anthropology in the kind of setting that I do it in, um, it's very, very different than academic anthropology. Um so the Institute for the Future is a nonprofit, um, but we sort of sit in between academia and, and consulting and the kinds of work that we do. And so the, the questions that we ask, the research questions that we ask, are sometimes much more narrow than, a, you, know, than you would be doing if you were an academic. Um, although we have the... the I mean, we're so fortunate at the Institute, and we've, we've been able to support ourselves for the last 50 years to do some of our work in more focused consulting, for example, um, trying to help a broadcast network understand what is the future of local news, which is a, which is a really big and interesting uh, question. Um, but we also have our own independent research agenda, which we, which we set every year. And, for example, for, for 2018, the theme across the Institute is uh, trust, actually, which you started out our conversation with, um, and trying to understand what are all the different ways in which trust is being 
challenged in which it needs to be rebuilt. We're thinking about um, the rise of, because we're looking 10 years into the future, um, we're looking at the rise of, you know, a world where things like Google Home or Alexa, um, devices that are in your home that you can talk to, that there will be many more of those. And so we're trying to think about how machine and human trust will be challenged or will be built. So those, those kinds of questions really lend themselves to a multidisciplinary approach. Um, at the Institute, we have, we do have uh, sociologists, we have lawyers, we have economists, we have a lot of designers, and I've learned a lot from designers in the past um, 15 years or so. And so I actually feel incredibly lucky to be practicing anthropology in a multidisciplinary environment outside of the academy where we are encouraged to work in, in, in cross-disciplinary teams. Um, so we have technologists, people with deep um, programming or technology skills, and um, we do have engineers. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's actually incredibly useful, first of all, to be forced to articulate what anthropology can do and why the questions that we ask are valuable and to try to show people that rather than just teach it, to show them that through the kind of research that you do. Um, and second of all, to learn. So to learn all of these different techniques uh, from things like design thinking um, and to expand, expand you know, your own practice. Um, so I've learned so much, as I said, I think coming out of a, an academic uh, anthropology background, we did participant observation, but that usually, you know, that, that involved kind of being, living in another place, living in a place which was somehow quite different from the place that you, that you normally live in, and in my case, um, working in a different language, working in Chinese, and um, kind of spending as much time as you could with people, and that's just not that you can't do that as a practicing applied ethnographer. You have your time is very limited. Your you have to do things in a much more focused way, and I do a lot more research in the U.S., so it's not a kind of a you know a foreign place. Um, so in that in that respect, having the the cross disciplinary um, input is just makes the work so much better. Um, thinking about, you know, using visual mapping techniques, for example, which I've learned from my kind of creative design colleagues, um, or um, different kinds of prototyping processes where we'll ask people to work with us to actually create um, an artist, we call them artifacts from the future. So rather than an archaeologist who would look at a, a pottery shard or, you know, a, a piece of uh, material artifact from the past and try to understand what daily life might have looked like and from that to extrapolate and understand what was the social system, what was the economic system, we create these artifacts from the future, which are little pieces of daily life. Now, that's a kind of prototyping approach that I don't think, well, I certainly wasn't was, didn't learn that as an academic. 
Well, I know, you know, in my own uh, teaching that the the Institute's use of uh, gamification and the production of online environments um, has had an absolutely dazzling effect uh, on my students. We've participated in uh, two different IFTF projects. One was quite some time ago, I think that was 2010, uh, there was a, a, an online platform for people to um, solve future crises, uh, problems of the future. And uh, I introduced that to students at uh, Valencia Community College. Valencia is an Aspen Institute awardee. And the students were absolutely blown away with the ability to take these things from their anthropology textbook about uh, theories and food resources and all of these different theoretical statements, and then all of these methodologies from their textbook, and then have this, it was a very, very large uh, international community that uh, participated in that particular game platform, as though to have this connected conversation, and they would I, you know, then they would come into class like every week, just literally with their, their heads kind of blown away. (laughs) (laughs) And for me as an instructor at that time, it was, um, it was so wonderful to have a space to let my students, uh, figure all of this out, um, an interdisciplinary space and not, uh, an instructor led space. So just really wanted to point out some of the the reach of the work that your institute does. Thank you. Yeah, this is, um, we have been developing since, um, since that time. We have been developing a series of online conversations, sort of collective forecasting experiences, um, which range from 24 hours to 48 hours to many weeks as the one, the very first one that you and your students participated in. And, um, yeah, it's another example of a kind of uh, the, the approach of a game designer. My colleague Jane McGonigal, who's really pioneered this work at the Institute, um, which is about creating an enabling conversation uh, uh, across a distributed group and, um, you know, designing, it's, it's designing conversational platforms, really, and where we would bring, IFTF would bring a kind of vision or a scenario from the future. And we always say at the Institute that we, we don't do predictions because no one can predict the future. The purpose of the kind of work that we do is to present a wider range of possible futures and possible directions of change. Um, so we bring those visions to life through often through a video and then put that online and create this conversational structure for people to have threaded conversations with each other. And that has been a really different way of asking and answering questions. And the, 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 the way that the platform is designed is to incentivize people to respond to each other. And so you get points in kind of a game system. You get points for adding onto the conversation rather than necessarily starting something entirely new. Mm-hmm. So it is, a, I think it's a really promising, um, a really promising direction. 
for all kinds of conversations. In the time that we have left, I want to touch on uh, two points. The first is um, this idea of future archetypes. And um, of course, at this point, when we say the word archetype, uh, we're either having a conversation in the back of our mind about Young or a conversation about Campbell. Um, Popperd never makes it in there, poor man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, so the Institute, um, through your work um, with the Institute, there's this um, diagramming of future archetypes and uh, there are a number of them. I'm curious, what future archetype are you most intrigued by? Well, so the way that we use the kind of future archetype format is usually when we're trying to map out emerging identities in a new and important space or a space of change. So, for example, um, Ten years ago, we did a study on the future of humans' relationship with technologies from a kind of identity point of view. We tried to map out what we called this, um, you know, this tree of different identities, emerging identities who were using technologies to extend their, either their senses or their social reach. And this was before social media was a term that we were all familiar with. It was before... We all carried around smartphones, and we were looking at things like um, people who were doing extreme modification of their faces through cosmetic surgery or people who were, um, you know, uh, on dialysis who were basically having to uh, modify their, their relationship with their body through technology in extreme ways. And so we're always interested in people who are forging new identities through these kind of, um, you know, edge behaviors, uh, often not of their own choice, but sometimes of their own choice. And those stories and identities are, um, I think, of, are always incredibly interesting to me because we try to find examples of people who represent either a challenge often or an opportunity, and, and often those go hand in hand, um, to do something in a new way. Um, so the latest study that we did was we were trying to understand the emerging kind of new identities or changing identities in the space of online platform work. So people who are organizing their livelihood and their daily routine through either primarily or partially through working on platforms like Uber or TaskRabbit or Fiverr or any number of these online platforms which, which allow people to both look for employment and to look for um, services. So someone, say, so if you have a need, you can go there, and if you would like to work, um, you can also go there. So there are these two-way kind of platforms. Um, and so we, we did a study across the U.S. And because the U.S. is, I mean, in many, in many ways, in many areas, the U.S. is not a leader in, um, 
in things like mobile technology. We look to China and South Korea and some other places. But in this case, <clears throat> in fact, the U.S. Is, 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 is kind of paving the way for some of this. And so we were trying to understand what it's like, what, 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 hap what, is, what is it like to work for these things? What is your sense of belonging? Um, and just trying to get a sense of across that whole space, how might we sort of segment that into, a way, into ways of talking about what's changing that would be useful? Um, and so there were a lot of amazing stories that came out of that, um, you know, from uh, people who were coming out of rehabil rehabilitation for um, a medical issue who were able to find work um, online um, to do things like accounting or bookkeeping or editing or copywriting or proofreading or, you know, um, things like that, and, and so it provided a kind of a part-time work for people who didn't have access to that, um, to people who were driving full-time for a ride-sharing service, who then, there was one amazing story that we heard of um, a man who discovered that he was basically, he was gifted, and he didn't know this, at turning a ride into a kind of party experience. Um, oh, that's and wonderful. people who took his... his <laughs> people who took his rides with him just loved him, and he had this whole environment inside his car, and he ended up uh, starting his own business um, with these sort of party buses. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are, um, there are just so many. Once you start trying to – so I guess that's how we use the idea of an archetype. These are emergent identities. They're not kind of – um, things that will remain permanent forever. It's a kind of snapshot of a moment in time, trying to explore um, a space where there's where there's a lot of new identity work going on. Hmm. Lynn, we are almost out of time here, but I cannot let you go without asking you uh, to share with our audience uh, two people who have uh, informed or inspired you, uh, who you would like for the audience to know about themselves? Well, so given the current political situation, um, the people who I am most inspired by right now are those who are um, finding ways and strategies to, uh, to make change and to, um, to find a voice within the, the really crazy um, media environment that we're in right now in the U.S. So one of them is um, is the, the group Crooked Media, and I'm sure many people know them already. They have a series of podcasts, and they are former Obama administration um, work, workers, um, a couple speechwriters, uh, a foreign policy expert, and they've started a media company, a podcast company. And what I love about their podcasts, there are many of them. So DeRay McKesson has Pod Save the World. I'm sorry, Pod Save the People. They have one on international policy. And then they have one, Pod Save America, which is kind of like a general talk show. And then they have a kind of comedy one called Love It or Leave It. And what I love about them is it's very smart people 
with an insider view on whatever domain they're coming from, um, who are having these incredible conversations, and it just in a very measured tone. And I find myself at this moment, uh, you know, it's so easy to become so upset about what's going on. I mean, you can't help but not be upset, but I'm, I'm still trying to find ways to deal with the, uh, the Trump administration and the, and the Republican Party and what's happening in the U.S. Um, in, in, trying to find ways that, you know, allow me to live a, a healthy and happy life. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always looking for, for, for people who are helping me kind of have a more measured tone and a more hopeful tone. And so the other one is a group called Sleeping Giants. Uh, it's a, just a Twitter account. And they've been so smart. Um, they basically do one very focused thing, which is they go after advertisers on Breitbart, and they let companies know that their ads are showing on Breitbart. And it's, a, it's an anonymous group, and it's, um, they've had a really incredible success, so almost 3,000 companies in the last year that they have gotten to say that they will not, they, you know, they, they will not advertise on Breitbart. And many of them didn't even know that they were. And so for me, it's just a, again, it's an example of people taking a kind of novel approach in um, to, you know, trying to beat back the, um, what, I, what, what for me really feels like sometimes it's an overwhelming onslaught of, um, of scary and, and really disturbing uh, changes that are happening in our country. What is a question about the future that you'd like to invite us to ask ourselves this week? A question that we can all walk away and ruminate, think about, sort through for our own future casting as we go about our our week ahead. I think that question of where what was happening in my life 10 years ago um, reflecting on the the change from 20, 2007 to today and imagining that span of time and projecting into the future um, and ask and ask yourself what are the things that I would like to remain the same and what are the things that I would like to be different um, and 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 what might I do to to uh, try to make those things happen. That is an absolutely fantastic question. And you know you've done something because you got me to use the word I never like to use, absolutely. (laughs) So, (laughs) Lynn Jeffrey, thank you so very, very much for joining us here today. It's just been a wonderful uh, conversation, and I love having had the opportunity to to talk with you as a guest. Thank you so much. Thank you, B. Thanks for the work that you do. Thank you to all of our Love Tribe listeners today. Live, love, ignite. You can see what over 100,000 people are talking about and join the tribe. Find us on Facebook, Medium, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, morelovetribe.com. We will see you next week.